and welcome back to the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey. I am the author of Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. And today I'm going to be reading the Love Comradeship section of Alexandra Kolontai's 1923 essay, Make Way for Winged Eros, A Letter to Working Youth. This is part four of this essay. And I'm going to try to get through as much of this essay as possible in this episode so that we can have a really robust discussion of the content of this section. Because what I'm about to read is Alexandra Kolontai's really rather radical vision for what she thinks love and sexual relations will look like when they start to build a socialist and then, of course, eventually a communist society. The new communist society is being built on the principle of comradeship and solidarity. Solidarity is not only an awareness of common interests. It depends also on the intellectual and emotional ties linking the members of the collective. For a social system to be built on solidarity and cooperation, it is essential that people should be capable of love and warm emotions. The proletarian ideology, therefore, attempts to educate and encourage every member of the working class to be capable of responding to the distress and needs of other members of the class, of a sensitive understanding of others and a penetrating consciousness of the individual's relationship to the collective. All these warm emotions, sensitivity, compassion, sympathy, and responsiveness derive from one source. They are aspects of love, not in the narrow sexual sense, but in the broad meaning of the word. Love is an emotion that unites and is consequently of an organizing character. The bourgeoisie was well aware of this, and in the attempt to create a stable family, bourgeois ideology erected married love as a moral virtue. To be a good family man was, in the eyes of the bourgeoisie, an important and valuable quality. The proletariat should also take into account the psychological and social role that love, both in the broad sense and in the sense of relationships between the sexes, can and must play, not in strengthening family marriage ties, but in the development of collective solidarity. What is the proletariat's ideal of love? We have already seen that each epoch has its ideal. Each class strives to fill the conception of love with a moral content that suits its own interests. Each stage of cultural development, with its richer intellectual and emotional experiences, redefines the image of Eros. With the successive stages in the development of the economy and social life, Ideas of love have changed. Shades of emotion have assumed greater significance or, on the other hand, have ceased to exist. So in this part of the essay, this introduction to the idea of love comradeship, she's reflecting back on the passages that I read in episodes um, previous to this one, parts one, two, and three of this essay, where she talks about the love ideal of ancient societies, the love ideal of feudalism, and the love ideal of capitalism. And um, it's really helpful to keep that in mind as we continue with this section. In the course of the thousand-year history of human society, love has developed from the simple biological instinct, 
the urge to reproduce, which is inherent in all creatures from the highest to the lowest, into a most complex emotion that is constantly acquiring new intellectual and emotional aspects. Love has become a psychological and social factor. Under the impact of economic and social forces, the biological instinct for reproduction has been transformed into two diametrically opposed directions. On the one hand, the healthy sexual instinct has been turned by monstrous social and economic relations, particularly those of capitalism, into unhealthy carnality. The sexual act has become an aim in itself, just another way of obtaining pleasure, through lusts sharpened with excess and then distorted, harmful titillations of the flesh. A man does not have sex in response to healthy instincts which have drawn him to a particular woman. A man approaches any woman, though he feels no sexual need for her in particular, with the aim of gaining his sexual satisfaction and pleasure through her. This deviation towards unhealthy carnality takes relationships far from their source in the biological instinct. On the other hand, over the centuries and with the changes in human social life and culture, a web of emotional and intellectual experiences has come to surround the physical attraction of the sexes. Love, in its present form, is a complex state of mind and body. It has long been separated from its primary source, the biological instinct for reproduction, and in fact, it is frequently in sharp contradiction with it. Love is intricately woven from friendship, passion, maternal tenderness, infatuation, mutual compatibility, sympathy, admiration, familiarity, and many other shades of emotion. With such a range of emotions involved, it becomes increasingly difficult to distinguish direct connection between the natural drive of quote-unquote wingless eros and quote-unquote winged eros, where physical attraction and emotional warmth are fused. The existence of love-friendship, where the element of physical attraction is absent, of love for one's work or for a cause, and of love for the collective— testify to the extent to which love has become spiritualized and separated from its biological base. Now, again, I just want to pause and say that I inserted the quote-unquotes there in that passage just so that you understand that Kolontai has both of these phrases, winged eros and wingless eros, in quotation marks, because she's going to spend a lot of time trying to unpack what those two things mean and how they are in contradiction to each other. And again, I think it's important to understand that she's trying to talk about love as a factor that can help bind the proletarian class together, that can be a productive force for the building of a socialist society, and not, as many of her critics have claimed, just a kind of free-for-all of, you know, free, liberated love or promiscuity, because that's not at all what Alexander Kollontai was talking about. In modern society, sharp contradictions frequently arise and battles are waged between the various manifestations of emotion. A deep intellectual and emotional involvement in one's work may not be compatible with love for a particular man or woman. Love for the collective might conflict with love for husband, wife, or children. It may be difficult for love-friendship in one person to coexist with passion in another. In the one case, love is predominantly based on intellectual compatibility, and in the other case, on physical harmony. 
Love has many faces and aspects, the various shades of feeling that have been developed over the ages and which are experienced by contemporary men and women cannot be covered by such a general and inexact term. Under the rule of bourgeois ideology and the capitalist way of life, the complexity of love creates a series of complex and insoluble problems. At this present moment, many small people are weighed down by the difficulties of love and vainly seek for solution within the framework of bourgeois thought. But the key to the solution is in the hands of the proletariat. Only the ideology and the lifestyle of the new laboring humanity can unravel this complex problem of emotion. We are talking here about the duality of love, of the complexities of the winged eros. This should not be confused with sexual relations, without eros, where one man goes with many women or one woman with any number of men. Relations where no personal feelings are involved can have unfortunate and harmful consequences, the early exhaustion of the organism, venereal diseases, etc., but however entangled they are, they do not give rise to emotional dramas. These dramas and conflicts begin only where the various shades and manifestations of love are present. A woman feels close to a man whose ideas, hopes, and aspirations match her own. She is attracted physically to another. For one woman, a man might feel sympathy and a protective tenderness, and from another he might find support and understanding for the strivings of his intellect. To which of the two must he give his love, and why must he tear himself apart and cripple his inner self, if only the possession of both types of inner bond affords the fullness of living? Under the bourgeois system, such a division of the inner emotional world involves inevitable suffering. For thousands of years, human culture, which is based on the institution of property, has been teaching people that love is linked with the principles of property. Bourgeois ideology has insisted that love, mutual love, gives the right to the absolute and indivisible possession of the beloved person. Such exclusiveness was the natural consequence of the established form of pair marriage and of the ideal of all-embracing love between husband and wife. But can such an ideal correspond to the interests of the working class? Surely it is important and desirable from the proletariat's point of view that people's emotions should develop a wider and richer range. And surely the complexity of the human psyche and the many-sidedness of emotional experience should assist in the growth of the emotional and intellectual bonds between people which make the collective stronger. The more numerous these inner threads drawing people together, the firmer the sense of solidarity and the simpler the realization of the working class ideal of comradeship and unity. Proletarian ideology cannot accept exclusiveness and all-embracing love. The proletariat is not filled with horror and moral indignations at the many forms and facets of winged eros in the way that the hypocritical bourgeoisie is. On the contrary, it tries to direct these emotions, which it sees as the result of complex social circumstances, into channels which are advantageous to the class during the struggle for and the construction of communist society. The complexity of love is not in conflict with the interests of the proletariat. On the contrary, it facilitates the triumph of the ideal of love comradeship, which is already developing." 
So I'm going to stop here and I will finish the rest of this essay in the next episode. And I just want to sort of work through what she's trying to say here because it's really radical if you think about the fact that she's writing this in 1923 and that her male Bolshevik colleagues are not quite as open-minded as Alexander Kolontai would like them to be. But essentially, what she's saying is that bourgeois love is ultimately about possession. In a capitalist society, when we're in love with somebody, we want to claim their physical fidelity. Obviously, we don't want them having sex with other people unless you know, you're know you in an open relationship. But the ideal kind of pair marriage under capitalism is a kind of physical exclusivity. But it's also very much a spiritual and emotional exclusivity. We, we demand the time and attention of our partners, particularly in a world that's so crazy and where we have all these different demands on our time. The one thing that we want from our significant others is their full attention. And we get jealous and possessive when we feel that people are, that our partners and our lovers are not paying attention to us or not giving us their full attention and their full passion. And I think that what Kolontai is trying to say, which again, I think we have to really realize that in the context of the time that she's writing these words is pretty far out there. There's a world in which you may be in love with multiple people. You may love somebody because of their intellect. You may find kindness and warmth and compassion from somebody else. You just might find somebody completely attractive and just want to be in bed with them all the time. And that doesn't necessarily have to be in one person. And the fact that we think that it does is directly the result of capitalism. It's capitalism essentially reifying the idea of the all-inclusive marriage. That's what she calls it, this idea of all-embracing love in one person, because having a stable bourgeois monogamous family is what capitalism needs in order to pass on property from one generation to the next through the production of legitimate heirs, not illegitimate children that are born out of relationships that happen outside of, of wedlock. And so I, you know, Kolontai actually acts on this when she abolishes the distinction between legitimate and illegitimate children. She understands very clearly that in order for us to get away from viewing the family as a, a place where capital is accumulated and then passed on from one generation to the next, we actually have to think more broadly about our emotions. And we have to think of a, of a, a morality, a new morality around love and around sexuality that is outside of the ideological box that capitalism wants to contain it in. And, you know, again, I think that um, this is something that I've spent a lot of time pondering as I was writing Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence, because that's sort of the claim that Kolontai eventually makes in the final section of the essay, which I'll read in the next episode, is that for women and for men, people are going to be much happier in a world where not only is there a, a wider social safety net and there's less exploitation, but also when we have a more expansive understanding of love and that love is not just for our significant others and our sexual partners, but for the broader collective. She's trying to you know, liberate love from the confines of bourgeois monogamous marriage and say that we can live in a society where we have love for our comrades, our love for our friends, love for our parents and children, love for our teachers, 
in all sorts of platonic and complicated, maybe intellectual and, you know, sometimes sexual, but not necessarily sexual ways. And that if we allow that love to flourish, not only will people be happier, but it will actually serve the interests of building the socialist society that Colin Tai envisions. So I'm going to stop there and we are going to pick up uh, with the last section of this essay in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. This is AK-47, 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kollontai. I am Kristen Godsey. And until next time, keep up the good fight. Thank you.